2: Welcome to the Friday show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as the announcer said, you're listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. This is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. All you have to do is call us. Anything and everything going on in your life. Um, all you have to do is dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area here in San Antonio, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at com. Or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call, and we'd love the calls to end the week strong, is to use the free KSLR mobile app. There'll be a banner at the top that says call now. Hit that with your finger and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. We'd love to have your questions. One more time, 340-9585. We have a busy weekend here and we would love your prayer. Um, uh, our science fair is tomorrow for our school. Um, we need prayer that maybe our <laughs> this church doesn't blow up in some of the science projects. It's always a neat time. and uh, We've got judges, and it's a big deal at the awards banquet. The kids waiting to see who won the science fair. So that's tomorrow. Tonight, however, we have our Friday night study. Uh, I think an important one in Hebrews chapter 3. It's the second warning in the book, the warning against unbelief. Um, a hardened heart because of unbelief. So that's tonight here at Calvary Chapel. On Sunday, um, I will be in the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter eleven of the Gospel of Luke. We have three services. If you're interested, 15, and eleven fifty nine. And we would love to see you. Um, before I get into the questions today, let me just share my heart with you on something. I just my heart was hurting so much this morning. It's just one of those things where where there are times when the Lord lets you see sort of the the hardness of heart in this world and uh, the depravity. I was at the gym, and um, because it was cold out this morning, I went first into the sauna to get these old bones a little bit warmed up. And I couldn't stay in the sauna except for a, just a, a very few minutes because there was a, a young man in there. I'm going to guess he was 24, 25 years of age. And he had his phone and music blaring from the phone, not with earbuds or anything, just blaring in there. And it was it, it just bombarded me with filthy language. Now I'm no prude. I was almost forty years old when I got saved, and um, I used to have a filthy, filthy mouth. So this isn't something that just offends me because I don't know that's the way it is in the world. But my my thought in that sauna was that this is the kind of language that, that young men and women use now all the time. Now, I know I'm old, but I'm not so old that this is no longer a, a good idea. But, you know, you, you didn't curse around girls or women when I was growing up. With your friends, it was one thing, but now everybody, both men and women, The language is horrible. I'm talking about the worst possible words over and over and over in his music. And just when my heart is breaking, I go out and the music at the gym is throwing the same words out. I'm just thinking, have we no shame? What's happened to our decency and our dignity? There was one man who... um, I heard him talking, I I know he is a professing Christian. I don't know him, but just know him from the gym. And as soon as I wasn't there, his conversation turned really, really raw and raunchy. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, this this is, is, we're supposed to be salt and light in this world. We're not to talk like others, we're not to behave like unbelievers. And I got this overwhelming sense of how lost this younger generation is. Probably every generation has thought that about the generations coming behind them. But these young men, and in many cases young women, have no concept of their value to God. They have no concept that what they're doing is right or wrong. It, It just doesn't occur to them. It's just a natural part of their everyday speech. I bring this up because we really need to pray that God's Spirit would move again in the hearts of these young people. You know, we talk about we're losing a generation. The church isn't losing a generation. Jesus has lost none that he's been given by the Father. But I think even those who are raised in church are allowed such freedom. Freedom to listen to what they want. Freedom to watch what they want. Freedom to drink what they want or smoke what they want. It's like parents are unwilling to be parents any longer. I remember, and I hope this doesn't sound like I'm just an old grouchy guy, but I remember my grandmother washing my mouth out with Baraxo soap because she heard me swear. Let me tell you something, after that she never heard me swear again. And our young men and women, there's just no sense of direction, there's no sense of light now as painful as that was for this pastor's heart and it really was it just was one of those things that I had to deal with this morning. As painful as it was I grew to appreciate the young men and women and we have so many here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. I just thought Lord I see their smiles and I see them laughing and I don't hear the filthy language and their, their conversation is, is, is full of your name and full of praise and worship. And we need God's Spirit to really move. The harvest is plentiful for sure. But we need to really be active in engaging the world. On Not on their terms. We meet them where they are. But we need to be telling them about Jesus. They need to know there's a better life. They need to know that there's a more meaningful life, a richer life. They need to know about the one in heaven who loves them so much that he sent his only son to die for him. And I got to tell you, that hit my heart so heavy today that it was just really kind of hard to get through enough ranting 340-9585 for your live calls and questions here is a question from our email inbox is from Kirby in 1st Peter chapter 2 verse 12 is the word visit translated wrong I'm assuming this verse refers to God's coming in judgment and if so God is coming down to establish His millennial reign, and not just visit. Uh, Kirby, I think you've you've probably got it a little bit wrong. The word "visit" uh, is a, a, a strange kind of word. Um, Translate. It's it's more important to, to suggest in the day of His visitation, and that word is a word. Uh, It's episcopal and it's not not the normal use, but this is when he comes in sort of an investigating way or or to expect inspect us. Um, God is coming to see how we're doing to check us out. Now, what I just got done talking about, if, if God came on this was the day of visitation or the day of investigation or inspection, I don't think the world that we live in would pass very well. So this speaks of a time when the Lord is going to return. Um, we know uh, in terms of our eschatology that uh, the Lord's going to call us to be with him. We're going to be caught up to be with him in the air. Uh, We're going to be with him for a period of time uh, on earth at seven years while the great tribulation takes place. And then that day of inspection is going to come for everybody in the world. And when we're being inspected on the day that he visits, it's not going to be good enough to say, well, you know, everybody talks like that. We're young and we just, the words don't mean so much to us. Or, well, you know, everybody does this. And so it's not that big a deal. That's not going to be Okay on the day that he comes and inspects us. So, uh, Kirby, that's what he's talking about there on the day of our inspection when we stand before the Lord. I know we often don't think as Christians that there is a day of of uh, inspection for us because our sins are forgiven, but believe me, the motives of our heart are going to be laid absolutely bare. Here's a question from Matt. I like the way he asks it. Pastor Ron, what's more important being doctrinally sound or loving. Uh, Matt, you can't separate those two. Uh, If you are not loving, your doctrine stinks. If you're not doctrinally sound, you can't be loving. It's that simple. Uh, It's very important we understand that. You know, when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. And the reason he said it that way is because how we live demonstrates what our doctrine is, what what we really believe is laid bare by how we behave. Yet if we are the most doctrinally sound person in the world and we have no love, 1 Corinthians 13 says we're just noisemakers and an unpleasant noise in the world that we live in. So, Matt, we've got to be both doctrinally sound Because that teaches us who Jesus really is. And if we know who he really is, then we can emulate him. And when we emulate him, of course, then the spirit of God moving through us is going to be loving. Um, The idea that we can be just loving, which is more accepting of people, I think, even when their doctrine is aberrant, that isn't loving at all. We've got to tell people the truth about who Jesus is and what he expects. That is to be loving. It's not loving to let somebody believe something that's untrue. It's not loving to let somebody live a life that is in contradistinction to God's Word and not say anything. That's not loving. So we've got to be both of those things, and they're equally important. In fact, as I said at the beginning, Matt, you can't separate the two. Very, very important. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Clay. Uh, what does it mean that God is unwilling for any to perish? If he wanted everyone saved, wouldn't he just save them? Um, yeah, Clay, he, he wants everybody saved, but he knows not everybody's going to be saved. And obviously, God doesn't force us. He doesn't um, um, interrupt or, or intervene in our free will to choose. But it is Clear that God wants everyone saved. When we're told that God is unwilling for any to perish, it's in the context of of uh, the second coming. People say, "Well, when is this coming that we've heard about?" Uh, he's not coming, and Peter said, um, um, "Don't don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. God is patient, unwilling that any perish." So, God's patience is really important. You know, I mentioned on the program yesterday with Paula that I got saved um, uh, 28 years ago uh, um, ne- this week in fact let me see what's today's date yeah uh, I think tomorrow is is my spiritual birthday and um, imagine if God wasn't patient and waited for that February day in 1991. So God knew that I was going to be part of the family. He waited for me. He didn't have to. And he's still waiting for people today. I can't imagine that Jesus isn't eager to come back. He's He's probably more eager to return and, and bring us to him than we are for him to come and get us. But right now, if he came during this broadcast, I always take a moment to pause there thinking, okay, Jesus, you want to come right now? Oh, well, he didn't come. But if he came during this broadcast, I've got people in my family, I've got people that I dearly love who would be left behind to experience the wrath of God on earth. Think about that. If my heart breaks, how much more, how much more does God's heart break? So he's not rushing. He's knows the exact time. We don't. He knows the exact time he's going to return. But, Clay, God is really unwilling. The problem is we, too many of us, are willing to perish. I wish it weren't so, but it means that God is going to wait until the last possible moment, and then he's going to come and he's going to get us. Remember, God does want everyone saved. He just doesn't force them to save, uh, to be saved. Uh, think about what it would be like if, if God says, okay, you've got free will, you have to choose me. And Hebrews 9.27 says that it's appointed on men to die once and face the judgment. That means we've got to make a choice in this life about where we're going to spend eternity. And if we don't choose Jesus, we've chosen to go to hell. Imagine if somebody wanted to resist Jesus' whole life. I don't want anything to do with him. And then as soon as he dies, God says, okay, now I'm going to force you to come to heaven and be with me. That's simply not the heart of our God. He wants us saved, but unfortunately too many of us won't be saved. So Clay, I hope that answers your question. Here he is, let's go to the phones. We've got Greg calling on line one from San Antonio. Greg, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
3: Hey, Pastor Ron. Uh, I guess, uh, well, let me kind of preface my question before I kind of get into it. You know, the, you know, the Bible says that it's not good for man to be alone, and he gave uh, you know, uh, you know, Eve to Adam. Um, I think for most people not all, but some people are exactly called to be call single, but uh, for those of us who enjoy doing life with someone else, why is it you don't think or why is it that when we are in with Jesus in eternity that we will no longer be married to another person or just mm-hmm. just be a fellowship with Jesus. What how do you picture that or why do you think that's the case?
2: Yeah, Greg, you've asked a question that almost caused me to stumble uh, when I first got saved. Uh, I I remember thinking, you know, uh, getting saved and and, and finding that this beautiful woman uh, who loved God with all of her heart and who loved me was in my house, the woman that I, I thought I wanted to get away from before I got saved. And I thought, we finally got a good marriage. And then when I was reading that, I thought something had to be wrong. God, of course we're going to be married in heaven. I just figured out how to do it right, and, and it really almost caused me to stumble. But here's the thing. You know, it's a whole new order of things. And we can only be married to one person at a time. And in heaven, we're going to be married to Jesus. Now, uh, Greg, with all of my heart, I believe that God is going to make Paula hang around with me in eternity. I really do. And here's what I know for sure: we're going to have a closer, more loving, more intimate relationship than anything that we can possibly imagine. Now, there's not going to be sexual activity in heaven. That's we, we've got glorified, resurrected bodies that won't be part of the the new order of things, and we won't miss anything, by the way, because of it. Um, but but yeah, we're going to stand together. We're one flesh. So when, when I got saved, uh, uh, Paul and I became a team. And we're going to be that way. We're going to stand before God on the bama seat and be judged together. Uh, how we prayed for one another, how we supported one another, uh, how we responded to one another. So our relationship in heaven is going to be far closer, um, greater fellowship, greater oneness Than anything that we can possibly imagine, at the same time, our marriage, we are going to be Jesus's bride. And that's what we'll do forever. So um, we won't be alone. Um, Our relationship with everybody will be different. I think my relationship with Paul will be different than my relationship with anybody else in heaven. But but all of the other relationships that we have, I'll stand uh, before the Lord with before my church. I'll stand; they'll stand before the Lord relative to to how they received me as God's gift uh, as the pastor. So we're going to have a, a greater and more intimate relationships with everybody. But um, make no mistake, Paul is going to have to hang around with me, and uh, I think we're going to just sit down together and worship the Lord forever and ever and ever as a result. So uh, I, I hope, hope I that a, makes sense to you.
3: I have a follow sure up here, Just, a, just sure. a, a, a prayer request. Um, my wife and I are on your prayer wall. I, I gave you a picture oh. one day a while back, and I just want you to please give us some prayer. Um, she's not sure if she wants to stay married after 32 years. And okay. uh, I, I hope to give you a call one day and I think we have the victory, but right now it's not
2: looking good. So I appreciate your prayers. Okay, Greg, thank you. I'll be praying, and thanks for reminding me um, that that this is who you are. Appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585. We've got five minutes left in this half of the program. I I didn't uh, recognize Greg's voice. And um, one of the things, for those of you in the audience who don't come to Calvert Chapel, uh, which is by far the most of you, um, uh, people give me a picture. I had a, a young man come up. I said, Hey, I don't have a new picture of you and your new wife. And yesterday was his anniversary. And um, uh, so today I came to the office and he handed me a brand new picture. I've got a prayer wall um, that is just covers my office at home. It's actually Paula's office, but she lets me use it for my prayer wall. Um, but um, uh, that's how I pray for people. That's how I remember to pray for people. And And when people hand me a picture, they need to know that that picture is going on that wall. And that means they're going to get prayed for continually. And Greg, we will be praying for you and and for your wife for Lord to do a a wonderful move in her heart. Uh, For the time being, the one thing, the only thing you can do to help her out is get closer to Jesus than you've ever been before. Let His light shine through you in such a way that she would look at you and say, how can I walk away from this? And and the Holy Spirit will use your witness in your testimony. Uh, try to avoid arguing with her. Just love her. Keep your arms open for her. And uh, as long as, um, you know, there's no biblical grounds for divorce, uh, it's still not too late and the Lord uh, the Lord can move. Uh, we're, we're inside. We're about just turn three minutes now. So rather than go to another question, let me say this. Um, when God said it's not good for man to be alone man is that in the general sense it's not good for women to be alone either and as Greg pointed out it is true that some people um, are given the gift of celibacy and and they can serve the Lord and they don't miss anything Paul says in fact that that's a better state because you can devote 100% of your energy and your time to pleasing just Jesus without being concerned about anyone else but for the huge majority of people uh, who, who are Christians, um, we need to act as though it's not good for us to be alone. Too many husbands and wives are virtual strangers in their homes. He's got his thing, she's got her thing. Uh, there's no Bible reading or Bible study going on in the home. The, the home isn't centered around the person of Jesus Christ Uh, And for most of us who are married and have kids, your kids are watching. They're learning a lot about your Jesus based on how you and your wife interact. And the one thing that you always want to do is make your home a place where your kids know Jesus is in charge. And they're going to only do that. I uh, was once uh, asked, I had the privilege of being asked to do a A special event, it was a father-daughter banquet, and um, the one thing I told those dads, with their daughters in the room, I told them, the best thing you can do for your daughter is to cherish her mother, she's watching you to see what kind of man she should marry, if you have boys, your boys are watching you to see what kind of man of God they can be, or how, how they should treat their wives, take advantage of the time that we have left before Jesus comes take advantage of time and make sure your marriage every day is brought before the Lord it'll change everything and your witness will convince a lot of people Christian marriages ought to be the most loving, the most intimate and fun places that there are Well, we've got 30 minutes left in the week. Time flies. 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I will be back in two minutes.
1: Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the second half of our Friday program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a really good question from Meredith. When we confess sins to God or to other people, how detailed do we need to be? Meredith, we don't need to be detailed at all. God knows every detail. You don't have to rehearse the details. It's not, I did this, and then I did this, and then I did this. He knows it all. You know where your heart is. So you go to God and just confess, Lord, you know what I did was sin. And I know what I did with sin. And I don't want to do it anymore. And I'm so very, very sorry. Please forgive me. And instantly, your sins are forgiven. And I love First John one 9 you You're purified from all unrighteousness. It means that instantly you have right standing with God. So you don't need to be detailed. Now, what you don't want to do is have those general confessions. Okay, Lord, I know I'm not perfect. And... I must have sinned, so forgive me if I sinned against you or anything. No, we don't want want to approach God. We can't approach God like that. That's not being honest. So, Lord, you know what I did, and you're thinking about what you did, and he knows what you did, and all you have to do is say, I don't want to do those things anymore. Now, I think the more important part of the question is, uh, how detailed do we need to be when we confess to others? Confess your faults one to another, the Bible says. Uh, and certainly there's times that are at the end of our Bible study tonight uh, we'll have the opportunity. I have the men and women from the pastor's discipleship class they 'll stand um, in the front of the church, husbands and wives typically together, but we've got some single people there as well, and uh, we close our services on Friday, allowing people to come forward and ask for prayer. they can ask for prayer for specific things or they can come and repent, confess, and repent. Uh, we don't want them to be detailed. Um, you know, it's not important that other humans know all of the details. And in fact, we don't want to cause anybody to stumble, nor do we want to, to put ourselves in a position where we might be embarrassed in front of somebody. So we, we can be very general when we do that. And And since God is the one who knows all the details, humans don't have to. And I think sometimes if we don't remember that principle Meredith, we end up um turning prayer into father for gossip. You know, if I if I say tonight, and I probably won't tonight, but just say, you know, if, if you're holding unforgiveness, come and, and relieve yourself of that burden. Come and confess and repent and somebody will pray with you and pray for you. It's not necessary to tell them all the things the other person did, the reason that you're holding unforgiveness. It's not necessary to name names. Prayer should never be a place that becomes um, um, a bed for gossip. So, uh, not detailed at all. One other comment that I might make, and this isn't what you asked, Meredith, but when you've confessed your sins... And God has forgiven and forgotten them. They don't need to be brought up anymore. The enemy will try to push that play button and make you feel extra guilty all over again. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1 says. So when you've got sins that have been forgiven, they're in your past, leave them there. Forgetting what is behind, Paul said, one thing I do, this one thing I do, I press on and I like saying it this way I press forward no longer worried about what's behind me but worried only about what's in front of me I want to stay with Jesus and fellowship with him allows you to do that here's a question from Jonathan he does not say how old he is but he says what kind of service in the church can kids like me be involved in Jonathan this is one of the thrilling questions Uh, that I've had in a long time. I love the idea that kids love to serve. There's all kinds of things you can do. Now, I don't know where you go to church, Jonathan, but here's what we do here at Calvary Chapel. Just to give you an idea, we have a, a, a ministry called Growing in Servanthood, and it is a place where children serve with their parents or with a parent. They get involved in ministry groups, and they serve, and they do everything from cleaning um, if you were to come into the bathroom between services here on a Sunday, you might see an eight-year-old standing on the on the the uh, basin cabinet. I don't know if the word escapes me now, but 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 they're cleaning the mirrors. Um, you know they're they're uh, taking out trash. Um, there's a, a ministry where they can go and pray. Uh, we have a lot of the kids who will usher with their parents and pass out bulletins and things like that. Um, On Communion Sundays here, Jonathan, uh, we let our kids participate in passing out the elements in the church, and these are very important steps. Learning to serve, the earlier the better, and learning to serve is really the key to, to, to being blessed by the Lord in all that you do. So there's just almost no service you can't be involved in. Um we've had young people, I don't know again how n- not like eight or nine but but teenagers be involved in sound ministry um there's the, our, our kids especially our teenagers Jonathan involved in helping in the ministry uh one of the the uh, young girls who comes in here every uh day at four o'clock to pray for the program with with a bunch of the other kids um she'll come all three services on Sunday and she actually goes in and helps the, the teachers in two of those services um, with the kids that they've got in their class. She's been in the class and and uh, she goes and offers her help and they, they like her because she's so energetic. So children's ministry is a great place to serve. Um, being in the nursery uh, we've got babies to hold and babies to pray for and and um, And the kids with adult supervision are in there able to do that. So there's lots and lots of opportunities, Jonathan, uh, where where children can be involved in service. Uh, go talk to your pastor and tell him, "You know what? I, I love coming to church here, but I want to serve." Uh, I think every church, every church, regardless of size now, ought to have at least two services. And the reason I say that is because they need to go to one service and listen to the Bible study. And then they need to use the other service to serve others. If you have one service, you can't do that. If you have one service, the children's ministry leaders never get in to where the Word's being taught. Um, It's just, I can't imagine ever doing one service. If I had a building that could seat 10,000, I'd still have two services at least. And I think, I think it's important. So Jonathan, good for you for wanting to serve. Here is an anonymous question. My wife is having some health issues and we are both afraid. How can we not be afraid and have bigger faith? Uh, anonymous, this isn't necessarily about having bigger faith or that your faith is weak. Fear is natural for all of us. Um, I dare say Paula has as much faith as anybody I know. Uh, but when I was going into surgery, and the doctor said this was critical surgery, or or uh, let me rephrase it, that, that there could be problems or complications, um, she was afraid. But here's what she did in her fair, in her with her fear, she took it before the Lord, and found a way to rest, so that fear didn't overwhelm her. It's not. A sign of bad or weak faith to be afraid. I think sometimes we get the impression that if we weren't, a, if our faith was sufficient, we wouldn't even be afraid. But there's so much that we're afraid of. I tell our church here, Anonymous, that that faith is the antidote for fear. Fear is why we need faith, and so when we're afraid, we take those issues before the Lord. Now, one other thing, and. Um, in, in looking at this question today, um, I was just reminded of a situation that I had earlier this week where somebody came and said something similar to your question, that uh, their wife is having some issues that, that as of now they don't have a diagnosis for, um, and and they're both afraid and the, the, the young man in the marriage said, well, how can I be strong for my wife? the only way you can be strong is to be with Jesus. And you want to show through your closeness to Jesus what the answer for her is in in the case of the people here that I talked to the other day. Too often we worry about things that haven't happened yet. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. You know in the litigious society that we have Doctors really cover their rear ends by giving you the worst case scenario. It could be this, it could be this, it could be this. I can't tell you how many times doctors have told people in our church that your baby's going to be Down syndrome, you need to abort, or, or uh, you know, this could be cancer, this could be... And, and they, they just use all the key words to scare us to death. Um, and And I just don't think there's any value in that. You know, when people say, Do you want good news or bad news, I think most of us say, give me the good news first. Well, the doctors are delivering the bad news. Jesus is the one who's in control. And I tell you, Anonymous, what I told uh, this young man the other day in church, that when you have something to worry about, then God's grace will be there. Don't try to spend grace you haven't got yet. The grace to live... The grace to hold on close to Jesus when you're hurting, when you're afraid, will come when you need it, not before. Because so if you're worrying about something that you don't know is true yet, there's no grace available to you to deal with it. So now it's to focus on Jesus instead of focusing on what you're afraid of. Pray for your wife. I'm sure you're doing that. In the meantime, just remember that God is greater. Here is a question from Robert. This is a question I think probably a lot of us have asked a lot of times. He says, How is it possible to be angry and not sin? Um, Robert, let me give you a couple of examples in our um, New Testament. Um, Jesus... At the beginning of his ministry and again at the end of his ministry, he went into the temple. He saw what the people were doing to his father's house. Uh, This is a house of prayer. and You've made it a den of thieves, he said. And he overturned the money changers' tables. He let everybody know that this was not what God intended. This was sin against God. And he was angry. Later, in his ministry he's going to pronounce whoa, whoa, whoa on the religious leaders and in the, the, the Pharisees. He's um, righteous thing, calls them snakes. His anger is righteous anger. So anger in and of itself is not sin, Robert. Now the problem for us is that when we get angry we assume we're in the right and that's when we sin. I think we've got to remember always that it's not the same when we're angry as when Jesus is angry. I had somebody once tell me, well, you tell me not to get angry, but, but Jesus got angry, so I can get angry. And I said, do you, can you tell me that you respond in your anger as Jesus did with righteous anger? And he had to admit that he couldn't do that. So when we sin in our anger, we're misrepresenting Jesus. I think what we have to remember when we are angry that's when we need to go get close to Jesus let him keep a muffler on our mouth it's those times you say Lord I don't want to sin against you I don't want to misrepresent you so help me Lord not to say or do anything that I'm going to be embarrassed by and this is something God will really help you to do but what you've got to do is really and truly ask and expect. Here is a question from Damon. Pastor Ron, can we speak things into existence? I've been making positive confessions, but it's not working. Um, Damon, you've kind of been trapped, it sounds, into a really, really bad, unhealthy, uh, even heretical church. So the first thing I'd tell you is is, uh, change churches, change your reading material, uh, stop watching so-called Christian television. You cannot speak things into existence. There's only one who could do that. When he said, let there be light, there was light. Until you can do that, then we go to him. And we can't control Him. We're to be controlled by Him. And He's the one that can answer your prayers. He's the one that can make something from nothing. So what you've got to do, Damon, is you've got to be close to Jesus in a place where you're in His will, in a place where you're doing, obediently doing what you know the Word tells you to do. But most importantly, Damon, and this may not sound like what you want to hear from me. But you need to study your Bible in context. You need to sort of flush your mind of all of the false teaching that you've had and open your Bible and find out who Jesus really is. You know, when we talk about positive confessions, it's almost like we can twist Jesus' arm to make Him do what we want Him to do. Even he didn't do that in praying to his father. He said, Father, nevertheless, thy will, not my will, be done. And, Damon, the good thing about where you are right now is you, if you will take my counsel today, you're about to be introduced to the most wonderful man who happens to be God that you could ever possibly have imagined. Not a magic genie God, not a fairy God who's going to wave a wand and make impossible things happen. But this is a God who's going to invade your heart, and He's going to change you, and He's going to begin this process of making you want for your life what He wants for your life. And I promise you, I promise you, Damon, He's going to blow your mind. To Him who is able to do all that we can ask or imagine, more than all we can ask or imagine, immeasurably more, one translation says. That's the Jesus that I want you to know. So we can't speak things into existence. We can't jinx ourselves by saying something negative. That's false teaching. There's a lot of it going on. It keeps working on people, Damon, because they want to believe that they can dumb control God instead of allowing God to control them. 340-9585 Three four zero ninety five eighty five Shannon says, Pastor, on what exactly is the apostles' doctrine in chapter two of the book of Acts? Shannon, it's what you've got in your New Testament. The apostles' doctrine was what we have codified in the New Testament. Um, they didn't have it then, so the, the, the apostles taught it, uh, they lived it, and then the power of the Spirit enabled. That, that doctrine changed the hearts and minds of the believers and more and more they became like Jesus that the process of sanctification began we don't have to wait in supernatural ways we don't have to have prophets uh, come to us we don't have to have somebody come and say thus saith the Lord we have everything they taught in our New Testament let me give you a, a suggestion Shannon Read the book of Ephesians. It's always my go-to in situations like this. Because you'll find in the first three chapters of Ephesians, this book is just so perfectly divided this way. You'll see the glorious doctrine of the apostles. It's focused on what God has done for us. And then the final three chapters give you detail about how we are to respond to what God has done for us. So the doctrine, our hearts are grateful. And the second three chapters is sort of how we say thanks to God by virtue of the way we live. So the doctrine of the apostles is really, really important. Again, I said this earlier in the program, Shannon, but uh, Paul told Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely um, uh, doctrine is super, super important. You know, every time I say the word doctrine in church, I can see people's eyes roll, sort of. You know, it's one of those, oh, doctrine is boring. Uh, you read the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, and all you're going to see is thrilling doctrine. First three chapters of Ephesians read about the superiority of Jesus. In the early chapters, especially the first two chapters of Colossians. And it will thrill your heart. So in the book of Acts, clinging to the apostles' doctrine, it's like you and me holding on to our Bibles for dear life and never letting go. Fall in love with your Bible and you will fall in love with Jesus. We promise. That's the way we close every teaching program we have on the radio. And it never fails. If people will do that, they'll fall in love with Jesus. Felicia wants to know, Pastor Ron, do miracles happen at your church? And then she says, I just don't see miracles happening like the ones I see in the Bible. Uh, Felicia, miracles happen. Not not the kind of nonsense that you see on Christian TV. Uh, We're not raising people from the dead. Um, the, The miracle that happens in the New Testament church, and this is the way it was from the beginning. It's miracles of transformation. Now, if you're talking about miracles like me touching people's eyes and them seeing, no. But there are times, and tonight will be one of those opportunities, I'm sure, at the end of our Friday night service when we give people the chance to come and be prayed for. There will be some people who get healed. It's not like a, a healing crusade you see on TV where they throw away their crutches and uh, start dancing all through the, the sanctuary. Um, but there will be some people who, who God will touch and heal tonight. I call them quiet miracles. We're looking for the big stuff. Um, those miracles in your Bible, Felicia, were signs. Signs and wonders, were told. And signs point to something. They point to a destination. Well, those signs then pointed first to Jesus when he did them in the Gospels, and then to the authority of the apostles and the validity of their message as they were turning the world right side up for Jesus Christ. It was a world that was frankly virgin in terms of hearing about Jesus, and the power of God went before them. Now, in San Antonio, Texas, in the United States of America, Felicia, Everybody knows about Jesus, so we don't need signs. We declare the Word, we proclaim the Word, and the Spirit moves upon people's hearts and their lives are changed. The people who are looking for signs and wonders, Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for signs and wonders. Miracles don't save anybody, miracles don't change anybody. Now there have been times, Felicia, where I've seen God do something miraculous for somebody, And still that person didn't follow Jesus, at least not for very long, and they revert to their old ways. What value is the miracle? And when Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethsaida, nobody saw it. No attention was drawn to it. Jesus lost him in the crowd. The next day, Jesus found him again and said, Now go and quit sinning, or something worse will happen to you. You see, the miracle came with a warning. So, yeah, miracles still happen, but they're not the kind of miracles that we see on TV, and certainly not the sign miracles that we see in the New Testament not here where there's a lot of light now let me say this Felicia and we'll close because we're coming to the end of the program I think we got just a little bit over a minute um, there are parts of the world where Jesus is still not preached uh, especially in Muslim countries where people can die for changing religions where God does unbelievable miracles I one time went to Reynosa, Mexico. We planted a church there. And for two days I spoke Spanish. I don't speak Spanish. But for two days I didn't need a translator. People understood me and I understood them and people got saved. That for me is a miracle. But again, stop watching TBN. That's not the kind of stuff that happens where we live. Hey, it's been a great week. I appreciate the calls. I appreciate the questions. Have a great weekend. Go to church. Offer yourself in service to the Lord. See how you can be used for your glory. God bless you all. See you Monday, Lord willing. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh.